damn it, Hal, I'm the biggest black action star in the world. Kid. Where's my Hasta La Vista, baby? Well, what are you talking about? My Hasta La Vista? Look, if Arnold Schwarzenegger is getting to say lines like that, you better make sure the kick Ramsey has shit that's equally well written. Look, look, the script has that moment. When? Yeah. You say, I enjoy meeting you, Cliff, then you push the guy right over the cliff. That's too much for the audience to have to think about. They have to know that the guy's name is Cliff, and that he's on the cliff, and that the cliff and the cliff is the same. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time never called back. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls enthusiast, Andrew Phillips. (laughs) Part-time. And on this week's episode, we're watching the jerk Steve Martin struggle to make a half-decent film in Miss Piggy's Bowfinger. Should all of me take a leap of faith for this set of dirty rotten scoundrels? Or is it complicated for these mixed nuts, parenthood, father of the bride too? <laughs> Listen on to find out. Come on, get my door just as fast as you get time, Hanks. Kit Ramsey is the biggest star in Hollywood. Yeah, that's sharp. Do the thing. Yeah, it's bad. I'm a good in that. Bobby Bowfinger is a small-time producer. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Bobby Bowfinger, Bowfinger yeah, Films. Nice. We worked together on that thing, you know, a couple of years ago. What thing? That, uh, the, uh, the famous movie. Hey... Bobby needs Kit. You bring me this script and Kit Ramsey, and you got yourself a go picture. A go picture! A go picture! This script is butter. What? Butter, butter. This stuff is butter. It's all good. It's cheeky, baby. Kit doesn't need Bobby. Now get off the property. What? How are you gonna make the movie with Kit Ramsey? He said no. You don't think I thought about that? You don't think I worked that out? We have our actors walk up to him and say their lines, and he's in our movie. You prefer alien love. Alien love? Why'd you say alien love? Strange people are coming up to me on the street and speaking some some secret white language that I can't decode. But when you can't get Hollywood's biggest star, he's vanished, gone. There must be a lot of guys who look like Kit. Well, round us some lookalikes. You have to improvise. Would you be willing to show your naked rear end in a movie? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Now, the con is on. I tell you what, it's some covert stuff going on. And Kit Ramsey is giving the performance of a lifetime. Open the door! His fear is so real. Go! Go, 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 Freddy! Universal Pictures and Imagine Entertainment present a new film from the producer of The Nutty Professor and the director of in and out Oh! Steve Martin. You are going to run from over there to over here. I get it. But doesn't that seem a little dangerous, though? <laughs> no, 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 no. Eddie Murphy. Uh, action! Holy God! Holy God! I don't want to do this anymore! And Heather Graham. This is one of the hot scenes, because in this scene, Daisy's going to take off her blouse. <laughs> Bowfinger. Action! Awesome. Steve Martin stars as Robert K. Bowfinger, a wannabe movie director struggling to make his magnum opus, a sci-fi B-movie called Chubby Rain. After persuading his band of enthusiastic misfits that the studio has given him the green light, Bowfinger sets about making his film with famous celebrity Kit Ramsey, played by Eddie Murphy, in the lead role. The only problem being, Kit doesn't know he's actually in the film. 
Somehow, the resulting movie ends up better than anything Martin or Murphy have starred in for over a decade. <laughs> so, Andy, you actually nominated Chubby Rain, I mean Bowfinger, for this week's episode. Can you tell us a little bit about why? This has been one of my, it's probably one of my all-time favourite comedy films. And yeah, I just think it's genius. I had a very strange introduction to this film. I first saw this film in Rutland, Vermont, in the US. That's quite a commute from here. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And I just saw it with my dad in uh, one of those cinemas where they just continuously play films. So we joined it when the credits were rolling. And when I got back to England, I was just, I kept banging on about the film to everybody I'd met saying, oh, this is is such a great film. This is the, uh, this is the other great Heather Graham film (laughs) from that year. And I was like, oh yeah, she's good in Austin Powers, but she's even better in this. It's such a great film. And when it came out over here, it didn't do anything. I it kind of just was just a fly by night job, and it just got it just went completely under the radar, and I was just so shocked because at this time I was still kind of naively optimistic about how films do, and it didn't occur to me that a film that was good Could might not do well at the box yeah. office. Yeah, yeah, and it just puzzled me as to why people hadn't latched onto this film and thought it was really great. Yeah, because I went to the cinema to see this film myself, but I went over here, of course. It was just me and my friends, and we were actually the only people that were in the cinema. This film was seen by no one but us in our mm. you know, little town. Yeah, and out of the five of us, I think I was the only person that actually enjoyed the film. I enjoyed it a hell of a lot, and it made sense because even at the age of 12 years old, I was into the idea of making films, and I'd been collecting Empire magazines for like the last four years or so mm. since 1996, so three years. and i got a lot of what the film was talking about some of it went over my head but i got a lot of what it was talking about about filmmaking about hollywood and that really made me laugh but none of my friends really got into that no and it just passed them by they were too busy thinking about the next austin powers film or the next american pie yeah i mean 1999 was a quite a vintage year for comedy films but not the kind of comedy film that uh, this was no we were on the cusp of the gross out humor boom mm. which we are still very much in at the moment and uh, i think this film is is better than that a lot better than that but uh, unfortunately it wasn't the kind of film that people wanted to see at the time no which is very unfortunate actually because mm. i think that's one of the reasons it's gone on to be completely forgotten i mean people don't speak about it now and they should it should have a big blu-ray release a big anniversary release and yet it hasn't had that yeah and i genuinely think this is the last great film that both these two lead actors have actually made both Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy have had very, very inconsistent film careers, and this is definitely a high point for both actors. I, I don't feel any of them have made any films that are anywhere near as good as this since. Yeah, this is really the end of an era for yeah. Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy as legitimate comedy actors. I know that both went into making family films, but there was nothing truly cerebral or smart or witty about the type of films they were making. Yeah, well, you don't have to look at Eddie Murphy. Like Just following this film, he went straight into doing Nutty Professor 2 and Pluto Nash. <laughs> which uh, kind of sets his downfall right there yeah 
Eddie Murphy has had an Oscar nomination since. Yeah, but for also, a supporting role. For though. a supporting role mm. in a drama film, but we also have to clarify that in terms of comedy, that same year he released Norbert. Yeah. So that sets the idea just how far his star has fallen. Mm. And talking about fallen stars, another person we should mention is uh, Frank Oz, that many of our listeners will know as the voice of Yoda and a whole host of Muppets like Miss Piggy. Yes. Because... This is really his last great film as well. Yeah. He went on to make another couple that were something of a torturous production. Somewhat film. troubled, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he made The Score. Yeah, which starred Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, and Ed Norton. Yep, and Marlon Brando was a nightmare. Yeah, he was going through Unsurprisingly. His, yeah, the island of Dr. <laughs> Maru phase of his career, so he was making... Well, basically, the last third of his career was that island of Dr. Moreau phase, Yeah, really. Basically, anything following Superman was uh, pretty much a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's because, I mean, with Superman, he had uh, a lot of crazy demands and a lot of crazy ideas for what he wanted characters to be. One of which is actually that the Kryptonians should have been donut-shaped. Yes. And <laughs> Richard Donner had the gall to say to Marlon Brando, no. You yeah. can't do that. And at this later point in his career with the island of Dr. Maru and the score, nobody could say no to him. He just no. wasn't. He didn't care. He was making these crazy demands and coming up with crazy ideas and nobody could say no to him because he didn't give a shit. Yeah. And then um, following that, he directed Stepford Wives, the, the remake of Stepford Wives with Nicole Kidman. That's another film that had a somewhat torturous production. Yeah, because that film makes no sense at all. Yeah, you can tell it went through several different versions before they settled on the version that they have, which is well, just a mishmash cut, of everything. It's a cut-and-pasted version, yeah. Yeah. Um, are they or aren't they robots? It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Well, Christopher Walken definitely is. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> Um, <laughs> is that in the film? Yeah, that's definitely life? in the film. I was going to say, because that would explain his voice cadence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Frank Oz himself. This was the last great Frank Oz film. I know he made Death at a Funeral as well, which many consider to be a return to form for him. Mm. But still, he's not done much since then. Yeah, they're all generally small-scale stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this is a film that Steve Martin actually wrote himself, which, um, when we were talking about The Pink Panther earlier on, we were um, quite oh. shocked to find out that he'd written that as well. And the uh, the quality line had definitely gone down in the intervening years between this and Pink Panther. <laughs> yeah, Bowfinger was actually the first film Steve Martin had wrote in about 10 years. Mm. And it should have been the last. Yes. And um, he'd had the idea for it around about 10 to 13 years beforehand. He'd, uh, he'd had a couple of years off from doing a lot of heavy duty acting. I think he'd been in The Spanish Prisoner yeah. with David Mamet at that point. And, um, yeah, he just decided to write the script down. Took him about two months to write. And, uh, yeah, he sent it to Frank Oz because he'd worked with him a couple of times before. He'd worked with him on um, Little Shop of Horrors. Yep. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. One of my favourite films of all time. And House, House Sitter. House yeah, Sitter. House Sitter. That other classic. Yeah, with Goldie Horn. And also they'd worked together previously on The Muppet Show and The Muppet Movie. So yes. they were very much friends at this point. Yeah, so. they're very familiar with each yeah. other. So he thought that he'd be the perfect guy to handle this kind of script. And Frank Oz immediately loved it. And it's one of these things where everybody that got involved loved the script and did it because they loved the script and they wanted to work with Steve Martin. I mean, Eddie Murphy got on board because he predominantly wanted to work with Steve Martin, who he was a big fan of at the time. Yeah. I can't stress enough just how much respect I have for the players involved in this film. I know we're speaking about them as being fallen stars, mm. but I really do respect them both yes, as definitely. comedic talents, comedic forces they mm. are. 
And I can see why they chased the money for the time that they did making family-friendly films because that's what audiences wanted from them. Mm. But Bowfinger shows that we've missed something for the past 10 years. Maybe comedy changed perhaps a little too much. Definitely. I feel we've missed out on some great Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy films because of things like The Haunted Mansion and <laughs> yeah, and Cheaper, Cheaper by, by the, the Dozen, dozen. Yeah. and things like that. I feel like they've done a couple of half-decent things in between that, but nothing on the level of, of this, really, especially in terms of the comedy. Cause like I said, Eddie Murphy did Dreamgirls, but that's more of a drama. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Steve Martin's doing his banjo stuff now, so yeah, Steve that's Martin's not a euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Martin's doing whatever the fuck he wants at the yeah. moment. He's in that stage of his career. And that gives me hope that perhaps we'll see something else like Bowfinger in the future, now that he's in a stage of his career when he can pick and choose what he does. Yeah. And I think it's a shame that Bowfinger didn't do better because I think it would have been more of a vindication yes. of his talent. I think maybe when people do stuff like that and it's a labour of love and it's kind of easy to get through and everyone loves doing it and it doesn't do well, it, people can take it as a bit of a hit back yeah. and it might not encourage them to do work that's similar in the future. So yeah, you will go and do stuff like Cheaper Other Dozen because it's easy and it's a safer option. Yeah, it's a paycheck. The yeah. paycheck's there. One thing talking about this film as being written by Steve Martin, it does feel very much like a Steve Martin film, more so than it does a Frank Oz film. Yeah, I think this is Frank Oz directing a movie for Steve Martin. Yeah. So it very much is a Steve Martin vehicle. I mean, even Eddie Murphy is is in the film a lot, but it's very much focused around Steve Martin. He is the main character. One thing that Frank Oz does bring to the film, though, he allowed for many of the cast to improvise scenes and to spitball ideas and a great many of them actually come through oh yeah and some of the best moments in the film are improvised (laughs) so although it doesn't feel like a frank oz film overall there are frank oz elements in there definitely yeah and like i said this was a film that didn't have a troubled production they did have a couple of issues with the studio there was problems involving the highway sequence where the studio wanted to cut it and steve martin was adamant that he didn't want to cut what he thought was one of the funniest sequences in the film uh, because it involved shutting one of the la highways for two days to do the sequence but they managed to get it through as a kid that was my favorite scene yes it's still I, one of the highlights of the film it's it's hilarious and they only had six weeks to get all of eddie murphy's scenes shot because he was in between filming life and then he was moving on to nutty professor 2 so they had to basically get him in the downtime between these two films and i'd have to say this is the jewel between two thorns because both those films are not very good no, no. Especially Nutty Professor 2. Life is much better than Nutty Professor 2, but yeah. it's still not a patch on Bowfinger. Mm, definitely. The other thing, other than just being friends with Steve Martin, the other thing that made Frank Oz want to do this film is that he had a very personal connection with the themes of this film because in the 1960s, he and his friend Jim Henson, they'd started off The Muppets, and this was still at the time pre-Sesame Street, before they got really big. Jim Henson wanted to create an experimental film called Timepiece, which is rather interesting. And they literally had to do it on the weekends. And it was one of those films that was never really going to get a big audience, but they made it with love. And literally just everyone mucked in. So a real piece of guerrilla filmmaking. So on that particular level, Frank Oz really wanted to do the film because it really is a love letter to guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah, he's lived through this. Yes. And we will get into how much of a love letter this is to guerrilla filmmaking 
it actually holds these characters in more regard than it does the big studio heads. Yes. It offers a biting satire when it comes to Hollywood, but it has nothing but passion and love for this band of misfits that are just trying to make a film. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the talent behind the camera, but what about the film itself? I think it's time for us to really get into Bowfinger. So where to start? Yeah, well, we have what I think is a great opening sequence. This is actually a scene that was shot later after previews because the original beginning, which I've seen, wasn't entirely successful. It involved a small helicopter shot zooming in on Bowfinger's apartment slash movie studio. And the opening sequence was the original second scene with a lot more material added into it, but really didn't set the film off in the correct light. It wasn't really enough about Bowfinger as a man and where he was. And the whole sequence was far too long and just didn't really set the film off in the right way. So they decided to reshoot this whole sequence with just Steve Martin and use the voices of some of the other characters involved. They just contributed their voices later on. I do get where the thought process comes from in regards to the original opening. I do like the imagery of them juxtaposing Bowfinger's very small house, its home base, against the working machine that is Hollywood. Yeah. But it's still just a little bit too bland. Yeah, it doesn't really work as an opening. No, it says more about Hollywood than it does about the character Bowfinger himself. It just paints him to be small, and you can do that in the following scene anyway. And this is one of those instances where a preview audience can actually help make a better film. So they reshot this whole sequence and it's great because every single element in the sequence adds a little bit of something to this character and his situation, who he's about. Even the song that they use is literally about this character. They really selected a song that would reflect the mood and uh, type of character that they're trying to portray. And we get little shots of other films that he may have made in the past. A really good overview of his home, his dog, who's hilarious. She's played by a dog called Emily, who um, was a massive hit on set. The trick that she does with her legs spreading wide (laughs) was just something they found on the day that she did. Really? She did it so well, they just kept using it. Oh, it's a great gag. So, yeah. And... um, there's actually a thing with Christine Baranski. She's kept saying that she kept getting upstaged by the dog. Because <laughs> her place on the sofa was always sitting on the arm. Yes. Where the dog was always taking up the room of her place. And it, apparently there was one story where Christine Baranski actually decided to do the same position, have her legs spread wide on the <laughs> sofa and say to Frank Oz, I'm ready for my close-up now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a little, like flavor of the kind of atmosphere that was on the set there's a lot of love for this film and even them reshooting the sequence in this way you can tell that they really wanted to get it right and this sequence does feature a bugbear of mine that i have spoke about before but it's done in a very tasteful way it's done in a way that works it is of course the titles over the footage but it's done in such a way that this does feel like a title sequence they've actually made room for the titles in the frame so we know what we're supposed to be looking at Yeah, and it's funny that this is actually partly done for artistic reasons, but also done for reasons of time. Because this is actually a reshoot shot quite close to release, they literally had to shoot it for the titles people (laughs) to actually get the titles in. So um, it's one of those, maybe not a happy accident, but it was definitely a requirement at the time, but it works really well for it. I don't mind it when titles are used in this way, when it's used in a sequence that does feel like a title sequence. Another film that we've covered that actually got away with that was Death Becomes Her. 
it's when they cover part of the film when the story's actually already begun yeah that's when it gets in the way of a film for me that's when it becomes a tv movie so Bowfinger just about gets away with it yeah and the first thing we see is that this character's a down and out character we have a voicemail about the uh, phone operator we no longer need access to disconnect your phone. <laughs> and we get little snippets of all the main characters. So this is the character of Aphram, the character of Slater, and the character of Carol. So Aphram's the writer. Who's also accountant and part-time receptionist. <laughs> Slater is talent. He's the it guy. Yeah. He's the I it guy. I thought I was. <laughs> and uh, Carol is the out-of-work actress who's the diva yes she's a very method as well yes well not quite method what's the word i'm looking for she's very um theatrical very involved yeah that's the one i'm looking for and uh bowfinger is reading this new script and he's just finished reading it and he's like oh great script great script and he's on the phone to afram saying he's written a great script and he's like oh he likes my script i love the title as well chubby rain chubby rain chubby rain we we get to know that at this point and we have no idea why yeah and um carol's saying she's got an audition to do cats it's a small role but she's got to take it and uh slater's like i want you here by 11 o'clock oh man that's early uh so you get a real even without seeing some of these characters, little teeny bits, you get just a great snapshot of what all these characters are going to be like before you even meet them. Yeah, and straight from the off, you get the idea that this is probably his last chance because yes. his group is starting to dissolve. Christine Baranski's character, for instance, is, like you say, going to another audition. Mm. She's about to leave him behind. And you get the point that it's now or never for Bowfinger. And you kind of get the idea that he's kidding himself that this script is good just so he can get it made. Yeah, because it's fucking awful. Yeah. Everything we know about this film is just <laughs> god-awful. Yeah. It's called Chubby Rain, for yep. a start. He thinks that's a great title. Tell him why. <laughs> the rain is chubby. Because the aliens actually come to Earth in raindrops. Yeah, making the raindrops chubby. <laughs> Which is a real play on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, it's a pod people They do film. actually come in the rain and are pod people. Chubby Rain's a mix of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, there's also some 80s trash in there as well. Mm. There's uh, yeah. some gore in there. Yeah, <laughs> but there's definitely stuff involving aliens and sex and umbrellas. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Christine Baranski's character looks like she could fit right into a Brian De Palma film with her knife in the air and screaming bastard down in yeah, the car park. Definitely a uh, dress to kill moment there. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I think she'd fit right into a Brian De Palma film. Yeah, I don't know why he's never asked her to be in one. No. Well, yeah. And yeah, there's all sorts of bad things in the film and the hero of the film is called Keith Kincaid and he has the tagline, gotcha suckers. Which they treat like a great tagline. It's, yeah. it's just I fuck mean, off. that is a moment. <laughs> Even at this point, he's lying to them. Yes. Straight lying to them by saying that he's got a meeting with Jerry Renfro to discuss this script. And in actuality... All he's doing is just gate crashing Jerry Renfro's meal in this restaurant. Yeah. And there's a really nice little montage sequence where you get more of the flavour of who Bowfinger's about because he's driving in this crappy van. It's not even his van, it's Dave's van, who's the guy who's the valet guy in the studio. Who Played by the, he, Jamie Kennedy. Yeah. Who was on the cusp of being a star at He this was point an up-and-coming comic at this time and unfortunately got himself into the Son of Mask yes. and killed his career, basically. Killed his career dead. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, there's some really nice things here where yeah, he's driving this crappy van and he swaps vans to get a car, which is obviously somebody else's car that Dave has gone to wash, but he's just borrowing it for a, a brief amount of time. Yeah, we get a sense that Bullfinger's actually one of these fake it till you make it type of Definitely. characters. And I do like that he's quite deceptive and manipulative and yet always endearing. Yeah. It's a testament to Steve Martin that he manages to do that with the character. There's another great sight gag involving the switching of suits <laughs> as well because he's got the uh, the really horrible looking it's a nice little whip blazer. Pan. Yeah. And then uh, he's suddenly looking at the horrible looking suit and then he's wearing an ISO on. So that's great. And... Um, there's some really great stuff when he gets to the restaurant as well, where he's he pulls out the car phone, complete with the wire yeah. hanging out of it. And up to this point, he's trying to look like an indie film director, so he's got his little ponytail on the back. This is another thing where he's trying to sort of fake it. And um, just looking at all the guys that are going into the restaurant, he thinks, oh, I better not have this ponytail. So he just rips it off as it's <laughs> literally just suddenly stuck on the back of his head to make him look cool. Yeah, there's things like that where you can really get a, a nice picture of what this character is without having to do much. And we are introduced to Jerry Renfro in the following scene, who is played by Robert Downey Jr. During his uh, interesting phase. Yeah, during his <laughs> rehab phase. Yeah, I, I think this is probably why he's only in the film for about three minutes. But uh... Yeah, but look how far he's come since oh, then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Managed to overcome quite a lot. Absolutely, because at one point, this was the kind of thing that he would be doing, these little bit parts, because his career was really on the rocks. Well, nobody could trust him as a lead. Mm. And it wasn't until Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that he actually gained some traction again in the industry. And John Favreau still had to fight for him to be a part of Iron Man. And it makes sense because Iron Man's entire arc is Robert Downey Jr.'s. So it, it, I like that. I've always liked Robert Downey Jr. I'm glad he is the star that he is today because he has got star power, he's got charisma, and he's been through the grinder. And we uh, we get this awkward scene where Bowfinger's sitting opposite Jerry Renfro when they're talking about some big film they were going to do, some Avalanche movie, which I think kind of relates to something that Kit's doing as well, which I think alludes a bit later with Kit's agent. And Steve Martin's awkwardly on the phone talking loudly about how he might not want Kit Ramsey in this film. I mean, this is the time before mobile phones were quite as accessible as they are. And the only phone that Bowfinger's been able to get his hands on is actually a corded phone from the car. <laughs> and he has the cord simply wired down his sleeve. Yeah. And while he's talking, it obviously, it has to fall out. Yeah. But, but yeah, um, it's a great gag. It's full yeah. of great gags like that. Oh, I say, with this film, there's no wasted moments. Every single second of this film counts. There's nothing in there that's superfluous to the story. No, it's kind of a Zucker Zucker and Abrams kind of... Really is, yeah. ...joke rate as well. <laughs> and um, through this, he passes on the script to Chubby Rain, and Jerry Enfro actually looks at it and flicks through to the end and goes, Gotcha, suckers. And he's like, let's be risky today. I'm going to go with this. If you give me Kit Ramsey... Let's make this a go picture. Just teasing him, obviously. But um, Bowfinger really thinks that this is actually going to be a go picture if he can get Kit Ramsey in the film. <laughs> and, uh, and then basically tries to approach Kit Ramsey. Now, there's some interesting stuff here as well involving the deleted scenes. Oh. There is um, there's a missing part where he actually finds out how to actually get into Kit Ramsey's house, which he does by going to different dry cleaners and asking them how much they charge to do a shirt. And then it increasingly goes from a, a bog standard dry cleaners to a slightly posher dry cleaners to a ridiculously posh dry cleaners where it's in a big room and there's just a picture of dry cleaning 
coat going past <laughs> on a little video monitor and he's basically going how much do you charge for a shirt five dollars how much do you charge for a shirt eight dollars how much do you charge for a shirt thirteen dollars do you have kit ramsey's thing is like yeah it's just here i'll pick it up and he picks up his laundry and then goes to the house but all this part is cut out of the film he literally does a zip straight to kit ramsey himself which i think is a better thing it's a nice little gag but i think it slows the film down i will say one thing though that it takes away from the film is that we don't get an idea of just how resourceful he is yes as a character and that's one thing that illustrates i mean there are other things in the film that kind of depict him as being resourceful yeah but we do get the idea that he was kind of born to do this yeah he might not make the best films but he gets shit done uh, i think they just really wanted to keep the film at 90 minutes yes so i think uh, i think there's a couple of things that have been lost out of the film that added maybe extra texture but they're not really missed there's nothing you can say about the film that's like oh there's something missing here or we're going on this part too long it's everything's just the right length really what it needs to be yeah and it's in the following scene that we're actually introduced to eddie murphy's character kit ramsey who (laughs) is something of a mentally disturbed individual he's a real crazy insecure character and he's basically just angry about the fact that he's black (laughs) yeah he's seeking outrage and everything yeah seems to be just rooted to his race yeah i mean this is a thing about what they were talking about um with steve martin's writing as well is that um in the script he makes fun of everybody it's an all-inclusive script literally every single type of person in the story is made fun out of in some way so it's not one of those things where this guy is getting taken the piss out of solely everybody is and that's the thing with comedy is either everything has to be the joke or nothing can be yes. the joke the moment you start making spaces for something mm. you start making allowances yeah because this is done in such a way that it's it's not offensive at all no it's no. just a great satire of how he seems deluded into the fact that all the other guys are getting better lines than he is like like your Jackie Chan and your Van Dams, and they can't even speak English good. <laughs> this actually features one of my favourite gags in the whole film where he looks at this script that he's been given and he types into the computer how many times the letter K appears in the script, which is 1,456 times. And he said if you divide that by three, the letters KKK appear in the script 486 <laughs> times. And... Uh, <laughs> like the sickness is deep and then he goes on about oh the script's not shakespeare and he's going shake shakespeare Sha- i know what he's doing shakespeare shakespeare spear chucker he's calling me a spear chucker now so is it is oh there's some just great stuff here yeah i love that he's trying to seek outrage and just everything he's just <laughs> perpetually outraged one thing that's worth mentioning at this point, considering that race is integral to this character mm. it was actually wrote for keanu reeves originally I imagine some extensive rewrites have happened. Yeah. Uh, well, I think apparently uh, Steve Martin was writing all the way up until editing. So oh, wow. this was something where he was happy to do things like this. It wasn't as if the script was set in stone. Although I get the impression of when people read this script, it wasn't something that they were like going, oh, we might, we'll work on this yeah. and it'll get better. It's more the attitude of, this is great. You can film this now. Yes. But I think it's only just got better through improvisation, through rewrites as they've been going along. And incorporating the actors themselves into the Well, that's it. That's that's the great thing that Frank Oz does, is he allows his actors to bring something to the script. It perhaps didn't need improving on the page, but he allowed for that freedom. Yeah. And these are great actors. These are great comedy actors. Mm. So, of course, they're going to have jokes to bring, things to contribute. And this is another interesting thing to talk about now, introducing this character of Kit Ramsey. This film is really talking about an age of cinema that was actually dying at the time. 
this is the age of the movie star. Yes. And we were really in that time, uh, 99 to 2000, at the tail end of this whole era, which stemmed right from, well, from the 80s all the way through the 90s, really. All these guys that they're mentioning, like Jackie Chan and Van Damme and Schwarzenegger, their careers were actually all winding down at this point. Yeah, Schwarzenegger's career was already on the way out. It was yeah. circling the drain at this point. I mean, to talk about films that he was involved in at the time, you've got End of Days, The Sixth Day, and Collateral Damage. Mm. I mean, there's a couple of them I actually like in a guilty pleasure kind of way, but you can't deny that these these careers were on the way out the door so it's kind of an interesting one but um it really works for the themes of this movie but um yeah this is kind of one of those things where it's probably not quite as plausible a story now as it would have been at the time no because this is from the time when the star was everything yeah and and a star would just sell a movie like when we were talking about last week people would just watch black rain because it's a michael douglas film yeah i'd say the closest we've actually got to that these days is probably michael fassbender with assassin's creed since he's been involved with this film since it was conceived yeah yeah it's a slightly different thing we, we are getting it a little bit as well with tom hardy and legend yes yeah as much as being made of tom hardy's performance in that and even other things like uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and things like Southpaw it is kind of slightly crawling back but in a slightly different way where it's a film that's being measured on the quality of a person's acting yes rather than whether they're a star or not so it's probably a slightly better way to go about it to be honest but we are seeing that a little bit more these days Hollywood is after all just a series of trends and that's all it follows um, it's built on those foundations, so it will continue doing that, and things will be in fashion and then out of fashion. And Bowfinger actually plays on that. I mean, Bowfinger himself feels like a filmmaker from a previous decade. Yes. From an older, simpler time. Yeah, so in this sequence where Bowfinger meets Kit Ramsey for the first time, we get introduced to two things. We get the main idea that Kit Ramsey is involved in this cult, this strange... I don't even know what to describe. Not Scientology cult. Yeah, it's ba- yeah this, this strange satire in Scientology, which is this organization called Mindhead. Yep. Which uh, is like a trendy celeb. It's not a religion, really. It's more of like a... Almost like a self-help organization, really. Yeah, in this it's one, all about it's... wellness. And um, Although it does have the E-meter idea later yes, on the like film. Yeah, like the stress tests and things like that. Yeah, but I love the fact that even... And I'm not sure this is an intention lot because obviously Scientology is very much of a pyramid scheme and the little hats that they wear in my head are <laughs> triangulars. So <laughs> I'm not sure that's a little in reference there. Oh, I bet it is. And yeah. they're smart enough to make that joke. Yeah. And uh, this is the first sort of instance we get to it. So he's off for his mind head meeting with his uh, guy, Terry Stricter, who is played by Terence Stamp with a really strange quasi-British-American accent. Yeah, and... Um, Steve Martin gets himself into the car with Kit by saying that he's got a script delivery and casually hands him over the Chubby Rain script to Kit Ramsey, saying that he's got to go get over to his Mindhead meeting. And then he literally, he lasts all of two minutes and then gets chucked out of the car in the road. And the Chubby Rain script oh, is actually course. shot and threw out the window. So, um, it's so this... Eddie Murphy does not like this script. Yeah, so it's <laughs> at this point where um, he's definitely not going to get Kit Ramsey in the film. Now, at this point, we get more insight into kit's character so we go actually go into Minehead and meet terry stricter and we get the idea of these happy premises so we have um happy premise number one which is there are no aliens <laughs> happy premise number two there is no, no giant, giant foot to try to squash me <laughs> i love that one and, it's so monty python-esque yeah. and happy premise number three even though i feel like i might ignite i probably won't <laughs> 
So he's got to keep it together. Keep K- it together. K I T. Keep it together. I'm sure he's thought about that. Having him called <laughs> Kit Ramsey. We also get the idea that he's something of a sexual deviant as yes. well. He's not allowed to show Mr. Weenie to the Laker girls. Even though the Laker girls want it, apparently. Oh, man. So, yeah, this is this is an ongoing theme. And going back to the, the idea that every single little thing in this film counts, even this little funny gag has massive consequences later on. Yeah, it's a giant payoff. Yes. For such a small penis. <laughs> <laughs> so... Bowfinger gets back and everyone else is waiting for him. They're hanging on his every word and he milks it for all he can get. I think he almost is trying to work out what he's actually going to do. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think he... He doesn't know how he can quite let all these people down. Yeah. So he's just trying to buy himself time. Yeah. And it very much reminded me of that scene from season two of Alan Partridge in which he realises <laughs> he's, he's not getting the series. second series. <laughs> and he has to tell his staff that they've all been sacked. And Bowfinger does actually remind me of Alan Partridge in that way. In yeah kind of how cowardly he is in this moment but Bowfinger is a much likable character yeah, despite think, all his manipulations I think the reasons for that is that with Alan Partridge he's doing it cynically because he can't be bothered to do it yes. whereas with Bowfinger uh, well it's like they call it later on in the film it's, it's a beautiful lie yes. so he lies to them because he's made them a promise so it's a slightly more morally justified reason for lying yeah you can kind of see his way of thinking a yeah. lot more clearly in a way that you can appreciate He's doing it out of love. And it seems as if the only person in on it is Dave, who knows from the start that Kit Ramsey doesn't know he's going to be in it. And yeah. and Dave is almost his um, man on the inside, because he's the guy that gets all the bits and bobs for him. He gets the camera, and he's obviously the one that's filming, so he needs to know that this is going to happen as well. So Dave is kind of his right-hand man, his sort of partner in crime as such. He's the one out of the whole lot of them that at the beginning does feel like a genuine equal to Bowfinger. Yeah, yeah. And Bowfinger does treat him that way. He's coaxing him to be a successor. Yeah, sort of he's thing. a protege. Yeah, whereas everyone else is very innocent and um, really believes that all this stuff is actually going on. Despite how ridiculous it all is. Yeah, and I just love the idea that this is a guy that's been really held back on his dream for so many years. And the fact that he saved all this money to make this film. And there's a great little gag on how much films cost to make. So he's saved a dollar a week for however many years of his life. And he's managed to raise $2,184. And uh, Dave said, well, films cost millions of dollars to make. And he says, that's after gross net profit percentage, 10% of the nut. Uh, yeah. Cash, every film costs $2,184. I also love that this plays on another joke that is kind of just hidden in the film. Mm. But Bowfinger actually jokes earlier about his age being 49 years old and he yes. has to make a movie before he turns 50. But when you actually count up his dollars from being 10 years old as it yeah. when started, yeah. it actually works out that he's actually 52 years yeah. old. <laughs> and that's only a joke that you can work out yeah. when doing the math. That's such a good joke. Just that's hidden how much he's thought film. about all this. Again, it's just playing on the idea that people in Hollywood are scared of their ages. Yes, definitely. We get our next big character introduction, who's the character of Daisy, played by Heather Graham. Now, she's an entirely different aspects of this film she has her own complete journey which is yet another satire on the ascent of the hollywood star yeah. doing everything they can to get where they want to be and i think this is actually has a couple more home truths the character is actually a thinly veiled satire of Anne hesh who had been romantically involved with steve martin at some point so there are little things of um well Anne hesh comes from ohio same as daisy and um, Anne Hesch had a involvement with an older man, which is what happens in the film here. And then 
towards the end of the film with Anne Hesh and her lesbian phase, Heather Graham apparently becomes a lesbian at the end. So there's a real ascent of the star story going in within this other story. Yes. But she's playing every single character in this film, obviously apart from Carol, but pretty much everyone else, she's playing to get to where she wants to go. But it's played in a way that isn't mean-spirited. No, it's not. Um, because there's one thing that I like about this character is that she does have sexual agency, but she is never really ridiculed for it she actually takes charge of the situation in that way she has sexual agency and she uses it as a way to get where she wants to be but she's never referred to as a whore or a slut and the film never treats her that way for it and that's quite a great step in fact yeah yeah absolutely and we get to this um audition scene where they've been auditioning (laughs) some of the people haven't been quite hitting it they're talking about it quality slater apparently has it which is that quality of you can't take the eyes off that person, whatever they're doing. And it's like, do I have it? Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> and she comes into straight off the bus, straight into the casting session. Yeah. And she has to pay $20 to, to audition. And she almost gets turned away because yeah. she can only pay by check and they're not accepting that. And he goes up to her like, there, 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 there's the door. <laughs> <laughs> but she eventually does the audition and uh, there's a scene where she has to kiss Slater and they kiss for a very long time. There's a great follow-up line when, when they <laughs> kiss for forever, yeah. it feels like. It, it, it goes from being funny to being uncomfortable and back to being funny again. That's how long they kiss. Yeah, I think there's a nice little changing of seat positions which yeah. really, it really makes it funny. <laughs> and uh, Steve Martin ends it with the line, okay, can we do it again? Slater this time without the erection. It just always gets a laugh out of me. See, timing is everything with comedy. It's one of those things I should have had faith when I was watching that scene because even watching it again last night, I was sitting there thinking, oh, this has stopped being funny. And then the moment I thought that, it started being funny again. (laughs) That's the thing. I mean, that's the true work of somebody who genuinely knows comic timing. Yeah. Someone else could have edited that scene and edited it in such a way to make it not funny. But um, this is one of my favorite little sequences now where they have to get a crew for the film. This is one of my favourite jump cuts in, in, in film <laughs> history, in fact. I was saying to my wife before we put the film on that this film does feature my favourite comedic jump cut. And it's when it's speaking about trying to assemble a crew. The, the best down crew we can get. <laughs> and then it cuts, I think it's the mariachi music yeah. as well that does it. Because <laughs> they're basically on the border with the van. Yeah, with the van doors wide open. <laughs> and they're trying to get all these Mexican immigrants to just get in the van and there's like gunfire. <laughs> That'd be chased stuff. by Border Patrol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're just going, andale, 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 into the car. Uh, oh, it's, just, it's just great. I mean, and the thing, again, this could be something that someone could say is offensive, but the way that the film treats these Mexican characters and their journey throughout this film, they end up coming out on top. Yeah, at the end. So it starts off as being borderline offensive, but it treats these characters well in the end. There can't be anybody left unscathed Mm. in comedy. Um, Everybody has to be up for the joke. But one thing that Steve Martin does that sets it apart from other kind of mean-spirited comedy films is that he treats these characters with love. Yes. And um, even these inconsequential crew members that would have just been extras in another film, they're treated with genuine love. Yeah, and again, they have a massive part to play in the end outcome of the film. It's actually their work that contributes to how the film 
ends up succeeding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Following this, Bowfinger actually sets the rules out to the whole crew in the fact that Kit only gets one take and he doesn't want to see the camera. And he's kind of fooled them almost into thinking that that's just the way that he wants to work. Now, at this point, I think we should also clarify that this is actually based on a true story. As crazy as that sounds, this actually happened. Hmm. And if you look in the IMDb trivia section for the film and listen to the director's commentary, they actually go into detail as to um, what actually happened originally. And I have a little bit here. So, according to the IMDb trivia section, Bowfinger is actually based on a real incident in 1927. A Russian filmmaker covertly shot footage of the vacationing Mary Pickford and fashioned an entire film around the footage, creating the illusion that Pickford was actually starring in a Russian film. (laughs) That is crazy. It actually happened. That's the thing. I can still see someone trying to do this at some point. Well, we kind of did see something like this. Maybe not in terms of acting, but in terms of location with Escape from Tomorrow, Mm. the Disney set film that came out a couple of years ago. Yes. So what happened with that film was a cast and crew actually just bought tickets to go into Disney World time after time after time and just filmed parts of a film. It was about a father having a nervous breakdown while at Disneyland. And they just over so many weekends, went in and shot a film. Without Disney ever really being let on as to what was actually happening. (laughs) That is guerrilla filmmaking. That is a film that Bowfinger would be proud of. Yeah. And we get the first instance of how this scheme is going to work, where they film the opening sequence where Daisy brings Keith his briefcase. So literally, Kit is coming out of his house in his chauffeured car. Daisy goes through the gates... And then it basically looks like Daisy is coming out of the house. So Bowfinger at this point is convinced that this is going to work. I mean, there is some artistic license involved here because the shots that Bowfinger is actually getting are ridiculously bland and flat. Oh, yeah. Like, how on earth are they going to make a film out of this? (laughs) Oh, there's some definite artistic license later on in the film when they have to, like, there's some really elaborate sequences that they're just shooting from from a fixed position. And there's definitely some stuff in the end part of the film which definitely they would not be able to capture on film. No, not whatsoever. <laughs> when they actually start shooting through security cameras, that's when I was like... Mm. Oh, but I just love the fact that they did that. Yeah, <laughs> and they thought they could get away with it. Yeah. In in this other bit, there's one of my other favourite lines as well where Heather Graham's just shouting, Keith, 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 as she's running down the street after the car. And Kit Ramsey's going to the chauffeur. Is your name Keith? And he goes, no, I'm Jimmy. But thanks for asking. It's <laughs> <laughs> just the way it's done. Yeah, Jimmy's never seen a gun in the rest of the film. No, so like, no but thanks for asking. And then we um, cut to the next scene that they're going to shoot, which is at the Rodeo Grill, where uh, Kit is with his agent again, continuously complaining about not getting these correct scripts. And there's a brilliant improvised line about white actors getting the Oscars for playing retarded people, a.k.a. Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. Also, the only way that a black actor is going to win Oscar is to play a slave. So he's asking well, his agent. Got on Amistad at the yeah, time as well. So he's uh, asking his agent to find a script with a retarded slave, <laughs> but the wonder slave. <laughs> and this is all improvised. Yeah, this is completely improvised. It makes it into the final film. It's great. It's golden stuff. Yeah, and we get our first glimpse of Carol as her character. She's basically just walks straight up to Kit Ramsey and just starts spouting dialogue at him <laughs> about um, wanting to raise soybeans in Wyoming, <laughs> things like that. Again, I look at that character in the film when I see Brian De Palma. Yeah. I really do see a 70s kind of Brian De Palma film in her. I just I don't know why. <laughs> She's just got the look. 
Yeah, and um, and this really plays into Kit's paranoia. He really starts his downward descent into really losing it. I mean, he's pretty crazy already, but he's getting even more so as all these things are going on around him. There's two things actually going on in this film, two prominent lines, and one is Bullfinger trying to make the film, and the other is Kit Ramsey being driven into a nervous breakdown by the making of this film. Mm. His world is falling apart around him because he has no idea what's going on, and he's already a damaged individual as it is. I just can't see Keanu Reeves in this role. I can't, Not at all. I, it's, it's weird that it was originally wrong Not for him, but I couldn't see him being able to capture that nervous breakdown aspect of the character. No. I'd imagine there'd be more jokes about him being wooden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, he's has to see the Minehead guy again because he's really starting to lose it. And um, he's uh, asking him to keep it together. And he's asking him also whether he's heard any voices lately. He's like, I've not heard voices. I've heard a voice. As I stand before you here today, the Laker girls cheerleading squad needs to be taken down a peg or two. Was that JFK's voice? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it did sound like JFK. Are they here before you today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we really now get the sense that Daisy's working her way up. So she's obviously slept with Slater. Slater. There's a nice little bit of like doing it with more than one condom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, never done it, I've never done it lying down before. <laughs> and uh, she basically wants more scenes in the film. So she's saying to Slater that if I had more scenes with Kit, that would really pump up our scenes. For, uh, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But um, she just wants more scenes. And he said, well, uh, Afro would be in charge of that. He's the screenwriter. And she's like, ah, little wheels going on in her head. So the next time we see her doing this same walk... It's the exact same it's walk. It's the exact same walk she's with Afro. Yeah, <laughs> having virtually the same conversation. Yes. Only less condoms. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, it's great. We get another great jump cut where Afro's just finished writing these new scenes where Daisy exposes her breasts. And he says, to increase sales in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the call for the parking lot scene. Oh, the parking lot scene is one of my favourite scenes in the film, actually. The, the thing is, this film is just full of them. Like, I just keep thinking, this is my favourite moment. Yeah. This is my favourite moment. This is my favourite moment. That's a sign of a truly great comedy as well. But this... This is what I like about it is it makes me want to go out and make films. It doesn't matter how because it's more about the experience of making films and that becomes more apparent as the film goes on. But even in these moments where it's just ridiculous, the setup is so ludicrous. Yeah. And yet I'm still sat there going, oh God, I want to be a part of this film. And the thing is, I'm in awe of how he's actually planned this film out because there's no moment where, for example, Kit Ramsey's character does something randomly and they just follow on everything's interconnected because he's gone to Mindhead because he's losing his mind because of the scene that's just happened. Yeah. And he's coming out of that meeting and that's where they're catching him again to do the parking lot scene because he's in the Mindhead parking lot. So <laughs> everything's woven together really well. Like all the narrative yeah, it's strands. Yeah, really Bullfinger's greatest laid plan. Yeah. The, the thing that really does this scene is Emily the dog yes. in high heels. Oh, it's a great gag. And just the sound gag as well of just the footsteps. And then you get the reveal of who's making the footsteps. And we also get to play on the idea that Kit Ramsey is scared of feet. Yeah. It's, it, it, he is scared of being crushed by a giant foot. And yeah. there he is being pursued by footsteps. Yeah. And we get, uh, yeah, really insane looks. And um, following the sequence, we get even more insight as to how this film is being played out. And the fact that they're doing all of Kit's shots and then getting Carol out of her trailer to do the other side of the film. Yeah. So she's doing all her shots and it kind of works. You it, can see it, how it, it kind of works. works really well. Uh, and 
Carol hasn't quite cottoned on to how this is working, but she's a bit miffed that she can't meet Kit Ramsey. And mm. Bowfinger tries to spin it in her way. And this is another thing that shows his intelligence that he was saying, we're making the film in a new style. We're making it in Cinema, Cinema Nouveau. Nouveau. <laughs> Cinema Nouveau. Ah. Oh. I think he's trying to say Cinema Verite. Yeah, but he's just creating a new style. <laughs> Cinema Nouveau. <laughs> and then we get... The other thing that's going to lead to the next big set piece where Kit Ramsey visits the clothes shop. And I love the bit where they have to, they have all these models coming out wearing the clothes and he says, do the thing. And they just hold up a, a little cardboard cut out of his face. He said, yeah, I look good in that. And my favorite thing on that, I think this is a proper classic Hollywood satire. I think someone's blatantly done this in the past where the clothes store says, we'll offer you these clothes for free if you come back next Friday and do a photo shoot for us. He says, of course it's going to cost you a thousand dollars. He said, that can be arranged. Yeah. <laughs> that clearly happens. That has to happen. And uh, Carol comes in and really hits the nail on the head because she's seen him because she really wants to meet him. And she's talking about how they really enjoy working together and how she's not nervous about them having sex now because there's going to be lots of people watching. How well he's playing the aliens yeah. and the, the alien side of things because she wasn't really into it at first, but now she's really into the aliens. Yeah. So this is just time out for Kit. We virtually see his brain frazzle on screen just through Eddie there's Murphy's eyes. There's lots of animal noises going on at this point <laughs> with freaky music. But um, Terry Strict and Minehead, they have to meet Kit at his home because he's uh, now he's just completely in meltdown and he's convinced that the aliens are going to inhale his gonads. I love the little <laughs> visual gag of the computer. Whenever he says gonads, it goes... Yeah, this is when he's hooked up to the e-meter from uh, Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like gonads is, is trigger word. That's where the thetans are hiding. Yeah, but um, he has to go away their relaxing quarters so kit ramsey is temporarily out of the profile and bowfinger's plans almost on the verge of being scuppered and he needs to find a standing quickly and he needs to find a standing with a fabulous ass because kit has shown his ass in eight of his last 10 films and eight of his last 10 films have been hits and he assembles we have an ass audition yeah (laughs) (laughs) a whole host of men come in the room to show off their asses yeah (laughs) and then we got the actor i love the guy's accent where he goes um I studied a year at the Moscow Arts Theatre uh, and did a year at the National in London. I'm currently doing a midnight production of Waiting for Godot <laughs> here in LA. For anybody that's actually seen Scrubs, it is in fact Hooch. Yes. Because Hooch is crazy. <laughs> and uh, are you in the union? Yes, I am. And they chuck him out. <laughs> See ya. And uh, then we get our second Eddie Murphy character, Eddie Murphy, a guy who loves playing multiple roles. But this is one of the more successful ones. Uh, I was about to say that. This is a time of his career when he was really exploiting the idea of playing more than one character, which is something that he has always done in his films. You look as far back as coming to America, and you can see that he's always been interested in playing more than one character in his films. But with Bowfinger, it actually works. I mean, it does in The Naughty Professor to some degree. That family table scene has become iconic in a way even if the comedy doesn't really land with me i can see why people have latched onto it and it's because eddie murphy is a genuine comedic talent he's a force just as much as steve martin is and he can do these he can create these characters that feel individual despite the fact that they're played by the same person but i think with bowfinger it's the last time it really worked yeah and the other thing they do which he didn't do so much with some of his other characters is they laid off doing any kind of prosthetic work with the characters all eddie murphy yes all they did was was change his hair 
pin his ears forward a little bit and add the braces. The braces are really the main thing. Yeah. That's the main difference. But everything else is just, just him. I think that's part of the reason why it works here is because there's no dressing to really get in the way. No, it's not like Norbert. <laughs> no, with Norbert, for instance, he's going big. Too big. Yeah. Uh, physically big, in well, fact. He's basically in Big Mama's house. Yeah, and it's incredibly <laughs> racist as well. Yes. But... <laughs> But, but yeah, with Bowfinger, I really like that it's a much smaller part. It's a much smaller dual performance. It requires less from him in terms of prosthetics. And it's more about his actual performance. Yeah. And yeah, like I say, I think that's why it worked. Yeah. And um, there's some great audition lines here, which were a combination of Steve Martin asking him scripted questions and him asking him ad-lib questions. <laughs> and this was designed to keep Eddie Murphy on his toes. Yeah. So... He was not only just thinking of funny things to say at the moment, but also anything scripted was taken to that next level because of it. So they got yeah. a much better performance out of literally keeping him on his toes. He was never quite sure what question they're going to ask next. And some of the reactions out of him as well, just the uh, physical reactions out <laughs> of him. He actually comes across straight from the off. It's kind of lovable. He's yeah. A, he's a lovable dope. The thing is, they were never expecting that character to come across as sweet as he turned out to be. So it was a big surprise when... I think the first thing they shot with him in that character was the round table in the restaurant. Yeah. And everyone was so surprised at the change that he'd made compared to doing the Kit Ramsey character. Yeah. And everyone was just like, oh. So there's a real about turn in the kind of two aspects of each character that he's trying to do. And he's actually very integral to Bowfinger's development as a character as well, because it's not until Jif actually comes into play that Bowfinger actually begins to learn of just what he's doing for these people, just what drive he's given them and given their passions a outlet and for jiff in particular he's just happy to be amongst these passionate individuals yeah and he's just happy to be counted as one of them and that really changes bowfinger yeah. as the film goes he's on he's just happy to do errands it would be a major boost for him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i love this character he's like i say he's just so lovable yeah and um the first thing he's got to do is run across the freeway <laughs> Which is so cruel, because yeah. it, we immediately establish him as a kind of lovable dope. And the next scene, he's just being punished. This is probably the meanest that the film gets. Yes. And that's why it works. Yeah. It's probably the meanest that Bowfinger gets as well. And uh, yeah, he's just tasked with running across the freeway in full flight. He's convinced Jif that all these drivers are stunt drivers. <laughs> and uh, he's lulled him into a false sense of security. Yeah, basically what follows is a very uninterrupted shot of him trying to cross this freeway. Yeah. And it's a combination of real cars and digital cars. And for the time, it looks great, actually. I remember being in the cinema and thinking, how the fuck did they do that? And it's only now I watch it back. Yeah, you can see there's an artificiality about the cars on the screen, but it does look convincing. Yeah. And again, the scene has another great punchline where he asks him to do it again. Which is, again, so cruel. Yeah. And despite this, Jif still wants to hang about with these characters. It's just unbelievable. And then um, we get the next step in Daisy's Ascent, where she learns from Afram that in order to get the new scenes in, it's up to Bowfinger. So she's on to her next step, which is Bowfinger himself. She asks him to talk about the new scenes tonight. And he's like, oh. So we get this whole little set piece where he's watering down the wine and uh, tying his dog's legs up with the elastic band and things <laughs> like that. We get some uh, yeah, cheap wine and a TV dinner. And again, all of it's played on later on in the film as well. As the scene progresses, there are comments made about how you can drink as much of this wine as you want, but you don't get drunk. <laughs> yeah. <It's> a- <laughs> it all pays off. 
one of the things I think this film does well with the jokes is that even the setups, they are funny in and of themselves. And even if they didn't have the payoff, they would still be a laugh. Mm. That's how jokes should work in all films, and yet they don't. Everything else plays in because he's running out of money at this point as well. He's used up most of his $2,184. She's getting what she wants, which is to get the step of the ladder, and he's playing off her as well. So they're getting to the point where they're kissing and they're going to make love and um, she's blackmailing him into letting her do the scenes if she makes love to him and then when she's getting changed he steals her credit card so that's where it sort of makes fun out of everybody where literally every single character's getting one over in each other at this point they're still kind of in it for themselves as well especially with daisy as a character she Mm. definitely is and as a character again she's another one that grows to be well they all in some way grow to be equals to bowfinger yes and i think that's the point of the film as well yeah but then you get another lovely jump cut where (laughs) you say i'll never play mind games with your head and i'll say i'll never abuse your trust and it cuts (laughs) to the camera shot with the old guy going thank you daisy because having just used her credit card (laughs) to pay for all this stuff (laughs) so there's some there's some really good comedic editing Yeah. yeah And then we get the actual topless scene itself, which again is improvised. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Eddie Murphy improvises the line, uh, you're going to be a star. (laughs) You're going to be a star. He's so innocent. That's what I like about (laughs) it. It's such a contrast to Kit Ramsey. Well, it's the uh, artistic portion of the film. (laughs) (laughs) But at this point, they're still um, missing Kit, but obviously Carol knows where he's going to be. He's going to be at this photo shoot that he's doing for that clothes store. This is how everything connects together again. So they rush across outside the clothes store to actually capture Kit as he uh, leaves the store, or as he enters the store. Yes. And Dave manages to steal Jerry Renfro's 53 Buick. Yes. So that's Slater's car in the film. And we get a nice little jibe on Hollywood executives at this point as well. I almost feel like Jerry Renfro's character is almost like the precursor to your sort of Ari Gold out of Entourage in terms of yeah. uh, who got the kids she did, you know, things yeah. like that. In terms there of is the that element to it, yeah. There is, yeah. And um, we get a very young John Cho yes, in this we scene do. Yeah. as the Hoover guy. Is that his actual I credit? I don't know his credit. He's basically like a waiter guy who's working in this bar. Ah, oh, right, yeah. He's hoovering the floor at the time. They just literally sneak in. And set up the camera in his window. And I just love how Bowfinger can dupe everybody into his vision. Even a cop car pulls up at this point and asks whether he's got a permit. And he manages to persuade him into being in the film <laughs> later on. That's the thing I like about Bowfinger is that being a director is legitimately duping people yeah <laughs> into believing your vision yeah even when you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you hear many stories from directors that are just winging it as they go but are still communicating this vision of utter clarity that it gives the illusion that they're in control and that's what bowfinger has yeah and um, kit thinks he's fully recuperated and he's talking to his assistant freddie saying you know there's no aliens it's all good and then immediately freddie gets nabbed by <laughs> an alien <Jif laughs> dressed as an alien he's confronted by slater he's asking where the plutonium is and he's saying that plutonium is mine and it's registered to be used for religious purposes <laughs> and it's like what do you need plutonium, plutonium for religious purposes <laughs> yeah and so it's like you, you you've got plutonium yeah <laughs> I think with the thing with all these sequences that they decide to shoot, 
every single one ramps up from the last one. Every single one's a little bit more elaborate than the last one. Yeah. So in terms of the pacing, it's just ramping up yeah. constantly all the through the whole film. And every time we finish one scene, you're asking yourself, Jesus, what have we got next? Yeah. <laughs> basically he's running away you've got carol confronting him i thought they were going to come shoot you today he was like shoot me today <laughs> he's running by the side of the bus he's seen the laker girls on the side of the bus he's running into the bar and there's a wonderful moment where bowfinger ingeniously just decides to shoot the two crew members and he's saying lyle you love this man yeah but you can't tell him <laughs> you may have won an emmy last year but you can't you see the moment he's embroidering for you <laughs> Uh, so there's just some great moments here where everything's so frenetic but everything's so well thought out yeah and in the aftermath dinner Jif actually reveals that he is Kit Ramsey's brother and this changes quite a lot of things especially in terms of Bowfinger and how he treats people and it really shows how much Jif again values being amongst all these people and uh, I think that's where the film really avoids being a cynical exercise it does have a lot of heart in that sense yeah it does make the point that filmmaking at least on this level is a family affair yes that the people that you work with essentially become family members mm. for the entire time you shoot and you hear this a lot even at a studio level and with certain filmmakers that they make films with the same family i like that bowfinger plays on that even on this small level mm. And uh, yeah, this is Daisy's next ladder up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the next scene, Jiff is just going, he's just bragging about, you never guess who I had intercourse in the van with. <laughs> she came with the works, man. She's the most inventive girl. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the next interjection is brilliant as well. We're both fingers going to Daisy. That's it. We're over. We're finished. And she's like, why? You have sex with Jiff. So I, I never, never thought, thought about, about it that, that way. way. <laughs> <laughs> kind of see you tonight. Yeah, eight. Yeah, that's fine. I thought that this was the point that the film was going to make a moral point out of what Daisy's doing as a character. Yeah. But actually, it doesn't. Doesn't. It, it decides not to. And I think that's the, definitely a big plus in the film's favor. That, Like I say, it never treats her any less because of what she's doing. Bowfinger would do the same if he could. Yeah. And in fact, he did earlier on in the film. He slept with her to get something. And it's at this moment after this scene that Bowfinger's plan starts to unravel because Dave gets spotted putting back the camera in the store by the security guard, Bob. Who is actually a member of Mindhead. Yes. So things start to unravel at this point because Bob goes to see Terry Stricter at Mindhead himself. Apparently he's a level six and he's been with us for four years. It's so Scientology. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> there's another great little line here where Dave's talking about how they don't have permission and Bowfinger's basically talking like, you know, Tom Cruise now had no idea he was in that vampire movie until three years later. <laughs> it's so you were a vampire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just love that. It's a great line. And we pretty much get into our final big set piece now, which is the final gotcha circus sequence. Yes. Which leads all the way up to Griffith Park Observatory. And um, we also learn now that Daisy really does know exactly what's going on. Yes. And she's just playing along with it now because she just wants to get up that ladder. Yeah, because she believes in this film as well. Yeah. She believes in Bullfinger's film that it will get made come hell or high water. Yeah. And um, we get the camera crane fitted out as a Frosty Freeze fan. <laughs> Anybody want any Frosty Freeze? <laughs> Do it look like one of some damn Frosty Freeze? <laughs> and again, this entire sequence is shot from miles away. And it's actually surrounded by a massive artificial bush that they've created. 
<laughs> around the actual cherry picker part of the grain. It just <laughs> looks so it's in so, your face. It's brilliant. It's meant just, to blend in, but you I just, just can't I love miss the it. shot of the Frosty Freeze van coming up the road with this bush <laughs> <laughs> over it. And this seed is amazing. And it's great that it looks as good as it does because the car park that they actually shot this sequence in was really not that long. So they had to keep reshooting little bits of the Oh, nice. A little bit of movie of magic at work. Yeah, then. and it was really not a very long stretch of road and they had to just keep doing little sections of this chase all the way through. Oh, that looks so good as well. Yeah. It, it does pay off. Because it literally is Slater's car driving backwards. All the cars are driving backwards at this point, yeah. aren't they? And the... Uh, cherry picker truck is following on the other side of the road from quite a distance yeah. i don't know how they're actually getting the shot they yeah. want but you know artistic license i'll yeah. grant them that and then it ramps up even more that they're being followed by a cop car and you think it's an actual real cop car well, yeah. it's a real cop car at this point but it's not in the way you think and um you can see how bowfinger has managed to bring in this cop to be in the film and he's um with afram also dressed as a cop and he's also a terrible actor oh i love it like yeah. Tough guys like you don't get far in this world, mister. <laughs> and um, we get another great visual gag, which is set up much earlier in the film with the whole idea of Afrim's character melting. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice special effect as well. Yeah. Because he's been working on this throughout the entire film. Yeah. Originally, it just poured out of his hat. And it, <laughs> at the end, the end special effects ends up being quite elaborate. Which, again, it's not captured on camera. No, it's all no, done from behind. It's all, it's all from behind. I don't, how on earth have they got it? Reshoots, man. Reshoots. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I just love the fact that it ramps up as well and his arm falls off. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's at this point where Kit finally is convinced that he is Keith. Yeah. There's been so many things happening up to this point that he really genuinely thinks that he is this guy. And he's persuaded to go into the car with Daisy to get up to the uh, observatory, which is where the, the climax of the film takes place in both senses. An observatory many people will know from Rebel Without a Cause. The Terminator. It is from The Terminator, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's a famous observatory. Of course, the film has to end there. I just love how they've decided to shoot the end of this film by pretty much shooting all of this via security camera footage. Yeah, just the feed on the televisions. <laughs> they are literally just filming it Hi, with their here. camera. <laughs> God only knows what the actual footage would look like. Yeah, there's some great little one-off things here where they rush through the planetarium and uh, Daisy's going, they're all aliens worshipping their false gods. <laughs> and there's a final showdown with Carol's character where she gets a head ripped off, which they've been making this head all the way through the film as well. <laughs> so again, everything gets paid off. Every single part of the film you see. Yeah, this is where everything has to pay yeah. off. All of the setups have been leading up to this. Yeah, and she takes him up to the telescope She's trying to get him desperately to say, gotcha suckers, GIFs just underneath with his microphone trying to capture it. <laughs> and they've got little shitty pyrotechnics going on on the other side of the gardens. And they're really trying to get this shot, but then they're just infiltrated by Mindhead. They come to uh, spoil the show. Because Kit is just too dumbfounded. He can't even say a word. He's just stammering. He can't get anything out because he's terrified. He is legitimately at the worst point of his life. <laughs> <laughs> All because of this film. His, his breakdown is in full force. <laughs> And this Terry Stricter character comes back up and finds them in the bushes yeah. and says it actually seems that sometimes the paranoid are actually sometimes being followed. <laughs> and he says this film is in for sale in Madagascar and Iran. Where there are no copyright laws. No. So, yeah, there's no movie. And everyone's just exasperated and bummed out that this is just all falling apart so yeah, quickly. But curiously, nobody is actually upset with Bowfinger no. for lying because they liked the lie. They like to believe yeah. the lie, like um, we said earlier. Carol calls it a beautiful lie. Exactly. 
Everybody's just genuinely gutted they never got to finish the film. Yeah. It doesn't matter who's to blame. But, unbeknownst to everybody, it's the Mexican crew that saves the day. Yes. Because they have been shooting extra footage of Kit as he's been going around his day-to-day life. And they've managed to shoot some quite choice moments. <laughs> <laughs> So it actually turns out, all that Laker Girl stuff from earlier on in the film, they've managed to capture it <laughs> on their cameras and competently as well. Yes. As they um... talk about how they use the aperture and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've just become really adept at yeah. cinematography. They found their calling. Yes. And they basically use this footage to blackmail Mindhead into getting this film finished. Really, they just want Kit for that final line and they say a couple of insert shots. Yeah. I do love that when we do actually get to see the final film, that shot of him saying, got you suckers, is probably the most elaborate shot in the entirety of the film. Yeah. (laughs) It's this big sweeping crane shot of him screaming towards the sky in a very Shawshank Redemption type way. I think apparently it's meant to mirror the shot in Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I know what you're talking yeah. about, yeah. It's designed specifically to mirror that shot. So yeah, it is literally the most elaborate shot in the whole film. But yeah, they eventually get the film finished and it's got a glitzy premiere. Yeah, and all the main plays are there as well in the cinema. Just can't wait to see what kind of films have been made of this. But before this, I just love how they get to, they get into the cinema and they get led down the aisle, further and further down the aisle. <laughs> to right to the front, to the literally the worst position you could possibly get. You get the nice view of the cinema screen and they're like, not bad seats. <laughs> bad seats at all and then we get a brief overview of the film as shot and this is a film that i've always wanted to see full length i'd love to see the full length <laughs> version of this it should have been I an extra i wish they did actually make it and release as a, a, an extra yeah one thing i really like about this scene about what frank oz and steve martin do um with the character of bowfinger is that they originally set him up as somebody that's seeking both fame critical acceptance and money but when the film is actually shown none of that matters anymore it isn't quantified by how much money it makes or what the critical reception is the final film itself is also somewhat inconsequential it's more so the fact that they did it yeah they did it with passion they did it with love and they got something up there and by the time the film finished they were all equals yeah it doesn't matter and i think it's also it that the the audience in the cinema liked it as well well, yeah. everyone's applauding at the end and things like that. So. I have a very King of New York way of looking at that ending in that, are they really applauding or is Bowfinger wanting them to applaud? Is that what he's yeah, hearing? I don't know. And I, I think, think that it's not really played upon, but I've always sensed that element about the film. But it doesn't matter. He hears applause. And then we get this after show party, yeah, <laughs> which is brilliant because you can see everyone's all moved on or moved along. Yeah, this is the, the Aunt Hesh thing coming back again where Daisy comes in and this is Farrah. She's the most powerful lesbian in Hollywood. <laughs> Things like that. And then you get the Mexican crew where they're all in demand now and he's like, oh, hello, Coppola. I can speak to her now. And we get the FedEx truck, which is the one thing that Bofing has been dreaming of right since the start of the film. It's been his unattainable fantasy. Yeah, and it stops. And I love how they build it up with the real big Hollywood music about this unsuspecting FedEx delivery guy bringing him this FedEx. Just this one letter yeah and it's an offer to direct a movie in taiwan starring kit ramsey's brother (laughs) and i have to say this coda this epilogue is probably the one of the most brilliant endings to any film i've ever seen it's fantastic there's so many gags as well it's just chock full of them what's it called now it's uh, it's called fake purse ninjas what a film again another film i would love to see 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just basically got Jif coming in. It's all like a sweatshop style factory where they're making these purses. Jif comes in with his guns, which he doesn't use. And there's all manner of elaborate stunt sequences where no contact is made whatsoever. <laughs> and he just looks terrified yeah. of anybody approaching him. And we get the old classic camera in the mirror shot. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we actually get Bowfinger starring in the film as well as his brother. <laughs> Then it cuts to Kung Fu fighting and all the other guys coming in. It's a big showdown. Carol's is the villain with the huge nails. Yep. And they run down the um, table. They have to climb down very slowly. <laughs> and it's just like this remix of Kung Fu fighting is really ramping up and they're just running towards the villains and then they jump up and then it cuts. And there's your free throw. But... It's one of those endings that just leaves you wanting more. Yeah. I want to see more of that film. I want to see more of the adventures of Bowfinger. Yes. Making films in Taiwan. Yeah, and that's how the film ends. And um, apologies if we didn't tear this film apart because it is really good. (laughs) I almost wish that I had something to be in conflict with with this film, but I actually don't. I have nothing to say other than good things. This is a great film. And I'm sorry if that comes across as boring for any of our (laughs) listeners. Actually, you should really watch Bowfinger. It's a great comedy film. With this particular film, it comes to a point of frustration that we are even doing this film on this show because this should not be a forgotten film. This should be a film that is cherished by all. Okay, now we've said all we can about Frank Oz's Bowfinger, and I don't think the quality of the film is in question from either of us, but why has Bowfinger been forgotten? Perhaps there are answers in the stats and facts. So first up, what did the critics have to say about Bowfinger on its release? Okay, so on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a average score of 80%. Yep. Which I'd say is about fair. I mean, it could be a little bit higher than that, I suppose. I'd say between 80 and 90, yeah. Uh, It's got an average score of 7 out of 10. Again, could be a little bit higher, I think. Yeah, it could be a little bit higher, but we've covered films that have got much less. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't bring us any closer to why this film hasn't been forgotten. So No, because even the critics agree that it should be a bigger success than it actually yeah. is. Yeah, uh, we've got Roger Ebert. He gave it 3.5 out of 4. Uh, he's saying that both is one of these comedies where everything works, which it does, where the premise is not just a hook, but the starting point for a story that keeps developing and revealing new surprises. Like a lot of Steve Martin's other writing, it is also gentle and good-natured. He isn't a savage ironist or a vulgarian and when he makes us laugh, it's usually about things that are really funny. Shell-shocked in this year of gross and grosser comedies, we can turn to Bowfinger with merciful relief. So that does allude to the fact that a lot of the other comedies coming out this year were stylistically completely different to this kind of film. Yeah, like Dumb and Dumber came out a couple of years before, you got something about Mary Round the Corner as well, so you've got that slapstick gross-out yeah. Farrelly Brothers comedy that's on the rise. Uh, again, I love there's something about mary i think both of those films are absolutely great but this is definitely in contrast to them. i think this is the case of wrong place wrong time yeah i I think because just the climate of films that were coming out were just it just wasn't in line with those i think you're right i think if even it came out a couple of years beforehand that would have given it just enough breathing space to really make an impact yeah empire gave it four out of five and they say After a decade in the wilderness, it's good to know that Martin can still cut it with the likes of Jim Carrey and Mike Myers. So again, we're alluding to your Dumb and Dumber, your Austin Powers films, which obviously came out around the same time as well. Mm -hmm. So both of these reviews raise a common theme that perhaps provides a hint why Bullfinger didn't quite land. See, 1999 was the year of Austin Powers, Big Daddy, American Pie, even Juice Bigelow Male Gigolo came out. (laughs) And perhaps Bullfinger just didn't have the cruder gross-out yucks that the main crowd was asking for. But that's not to say that it was a box office failure, as the money tells us it was something of a modest success. So with a budget of $55 million, 
Bowfinger opened to $18 million for the second place in August 1999. It opened against The Sixth Sense, which was first, mm-hmm. and The Blair Witch Project, which was in its fifth week and was third. And those were two massive films of that year as well. Giant films. I think The Sixth Sense was in the top three for the year overall. Yeah. And I do want to use this as an example of great counter-programming mm. because Bowfinger did open to number two. It did make quite a bit of money mm. and it opened in a horror season and did well because it offered something different. Yeah. Every now and again, this happens. You get this massive film coming out and everybody's expecting the weekend to be dominated by sci-fi, but you get a little comedy film or a little horror film that just makes enough money to really get by. Mm. And that's because people want something else. Yeah. There is an audience that are always looking for something else. Yeah. Yeah. So it's domestic gross overall was 66 million. Which is respectable. It was just over Juice Bigelow, Mel Gigolo, which perhaps paints it as an underperformance. It should have made more. Yeah. And its worldwide gross was $98 million, which was a 41st for the year 1999. So it was a success. It was a modest success. It came close to making its money back before being released on a home video. But it's still not enough. No. It's not enough in my opinion anyway. And I think in Britain it just completely passed everyone by. I just remember it coming out, seeing the billboard for it, and that was about it. I didn't recall anyone talking about it at the time. I do wonder if studios thought it was simply too Hollywood-based for international audiences to really understand what was going on, that it was so concerned with LA life that nobody over here in little old Britain would understand quite what it is to live in LA. But I think the main problem here as well, and this even goes back to me when I first saw the film, I wasn't even that keen on going to watch the film with my dad because the poster doesn't tell you anything about the film itself. All it's relying on is the star power yeah. of these two actors, Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. And even the tagline is all wrong. The tagline of this film is the con is on. Which sets it up as being some kind of Ocean's Eleven type comedy. And um, all you've got is this goofy picture of Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy and it just looks a bit crap. I get why using them on the poster as their main selling point makes sense for 1999. They were still big stars. People were still going to see Eddie Murphy films and Steve Martin films. But what does it tell us about the film in question? What is being made? Yeah, I mean, even the title of the film doesn't lead to anything. I don't mind the title so much, but it doesn't give you any kind of hint of what it's about. No, it doesn't let you know that it's actually about filmmaking. And uh, even down to the trailer that you'll have heard at the start of the podcast, it's not a very good trailer. It's rather tacky. And any of the jokes that they show in the trailer are some of the more baser gags that they have in the film, which aren't many, but they pretty much use all of them in the actual trailer just to try and get it across to that gross-out comedy audience. So, yeah, we've spoke a little bit then about the box office, but there is one crucial stat that I've been holding back until now because I find this one quite shocking. The IMDb rating for the film, which is user-rated, is actually shockingly average at 6.4 out of 10. Mm. When we consider that it was a modest success at the box office, it is a success with the critics with 80%, which is probably just slightly under what it deserves. How has it failed to find an audience? even with those that have seen it. I think it's a combination of people who are not that enamoured with what those two actors have done since, and maybe even just before. Like we said before, they've done a couple of decent films since, but the level of bad films far outweighs the good films that they've done. Yeah, the ratio is completely out of whack. These guys' reputations have really taken a nosedive since this film was made. Yeah, I do think that's definitely an element as to why. Mm. And I think the other thing which we were probably talking about before we started this podcast is that maybe it is a film that we would connect with because we're interested in film 
and we like the process of filmmaking, but maybe the general through line of the film doesn't appeal to everyone. Yeah, perhaps it's just a little bit too niche. It makes sense as to why it's a big success with critics because they're privy to the ways that Hollywood works and what filmmaking is all about. They understand that this is a love letter to guerrilla filmmaking. Not everybody's going to see the film on that level. Yeah. And perhaps it's just not landed in that way. We understand because we are fans of film. We understand the workings of cinema. And so many of our listeners will do as well. So perhaps that's why it lands with us so much easier than it does general audiences. And then you do also have that gross-out comedy element. Now, I do think it was a film that was just slightly out of time. Yeah. So I think we've answered the question as to why this film has been forgotten, and wrongly so in our opinions. Yeah. And all that is left for me to ask is really just a formality at this point. (laughs) Is Bowfinger one of the best forgotten films, or simply best forgotten? This is definitely best forgotten. (gasps) <gasps> no not really <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no it's literally one of my favorite films and i have nothing but love for this film i think it should be cherished by all anybody who loves the process of filmmaking or is interested in film should watch this film if they, have, if they, if they haven't done already and anybody who hasn't where the hell were you uh, <laughs> and uh yeah i just think anybody listening who hasn't seen it watch it and spread the word because this is a film that despite what we've said i still think this is a film that anybody can enjoy yeah and everybody i've played it to in the intervening years has loved it so i still think this film has the ability to connect with an audience no matter who they are so um yeah just spread the word yeah, I mean, hi. And maybe they'll go and make another one of these because I think that's the other thing. The reason Steve Martin and even Eddie Murphy haven't made such good films and have gone for more the safe option is that maybe because the reception for this kind of film was so lukewarm that it kind of discouraged them from going down this route again. And we haven't really seen anything from Steve Martin that's been of this level ever since. Do you need any more motivation than that to really go seek out the film? Because it could mean that we see Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy make this type of film again. I obviously echo the same sentiments. I think this is a fantastic film. It's one of my favourite comedies and it's one of my favourite films about filmmaking and about Hollywood as well. I love its message about guerrilla filmmaking, about that it's uniting and it's a home for misfits. We all feel that. We all feel that we're a misfit at times and there's a home for us in filmmaking. There are friends for us to make in filmmaking and the process, if you are passionate enough, will bond you with other people for life. I love that message about the film, and I love this film. There is no way that it isn't going to be regarded as one of the best forgotten films. Yeah. And that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. So please do get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. You have no excuse. Join us next week when Andy and I will be watching a film from one of the best. From the genius mind that brought us always, Hook and The Terminal, comes Steven Spielberg's 1941, the movie that nearly destroyed the career of a cinematic god. But for now, it's bye from me and ciao from Andy. I'll feed us in. Thanks for listening. People in the place, yeah, we're having fun. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be a big star. I'm gonna lay it on and go, woo-ha! Cause when the mood gets excited, when everybody's kung fu fighting,